Well, hey everyone, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here. Um, special welcome if you're visiting with us or you are uh, joining us for the first time here at Res City, uh, whether you're here in person, maybe you're watching online for the first time, or maybe you're listening to the podcast later on um, and you're, you're just kind of checking out Res City. Um, just special welcome to you. want to let you know we appreciate you. Uh, we notice you. We're thankful uh, to have you joining us in worship this morning. Um, we are in a uh, sermon series we're doing throughout the summer called Build and Plant throughout the book of Jeremiah. With the, the big idea is uh, God has come um, to speak through the prophet Jeremiah into his own time and place, into ancient uh, Judah, um, to uproot and tear down things that kind of oppose him, oppose his ability to be worshipped, to be followed, to be, uh, proclaim his glory to the nations around Israel. He's uprooting and tearing down those things so that he can uh, build and plant. And we still think God's word through Jeremiah can do that for us today. So we've been spending some time allowing God uh, to do that through the prophet this summer. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into our message today. Lord, we thank you that you are present with us. It's one of the things we believe happens in worship is that your, your presence is with us. I pray that you'd help us to take that seriously today and always as we... Um, as we worship together, Lord, but we truly, we seek you out. I pray that that would be our heart's desire today um, and every day, God, uh, that we would know you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a few months ago, I was back home at my parents' place, and my mom, kind of right before we were about to leave, she gave me some stuff uh, to take back with me, like some stuff from when I was a kid or in high school or whatever. She wanted me to like look through it and, and, and kind of basically get it out of her basement, I think, um, as moms do from time to time. And part of this haul included some senior pictures that I had not seen in a while. And so I figured I would, you know, take a look through them. And I figured, you know, these are probably not the best, you know, like senior pictures in general. At least I feel like when I was growing up were super cringeworthy a lot of times. But even I was not prepared for this one. <laughs> yes, that is me. This 17-year-old Joel, uh, I showed, a, showed this picture to a neighbor of mine afterwards, and she goes, it's nice your family stuck with you, <laughs> which I think is a, is a real good way to put it. Uh, I kind of have a hard time fathoming how I, I, got, I was a 17-year-old kid at this time. I was driving around. I would be voting in a few months, or I'd be able to vote in a few months. Like, I don't know how in the world... I allowed this photographer to let me take this picture. Like, I'm like, what was going on in my head? It's kind of amazing how bad it is. Um, I'm sure if you'd asked me, though, like, you know, if, if you'd gone back, you got in a time machine, you asked 17-year-old Joel, like, why did you do that haircut for these senior pictures? Why did you let this photographer, like, let you do the, 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 the fist to the chin pose? Like, what was in your, what was going through your mind with that terrible grin? Like, I probably would have had a reason for it. My guess is I would have actually defended it. I would probably would have, you know, had some reason. In the moment, I'm sure it made sense to me. Um, you know, it, it could have been I genuinely thought it looked good, which, ugh, you know, if that's true. Um, it could have been that I, you know, like just, you know, trusted this, this person. Like, oh, they're professional. Like, maybe it's not what I would do, but like they know what they're doing and we should always trust professionals. We should always trust people we're paying money to and assume that they know what's best for us. Like I, I'm not a pro. Who are you to you know, speak back against that? 
I think more likely, just knowing myself, it was probably that I just had something else I wanted to do and wanted to get out of there. So I was like, cool, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll take all these pictures and let's just get this over with. I wanted to run home and watch SportsCenter or something like that. It's, you know, probably my guess. But in the moment, I think the point is I had some reason, right? My, my mind, my heart were in alignment on letting this thing happen. And I think in reality, it does kind of show like how much of a puzzle our minds and hearts can be, right? That we often don't realize in the moment, but we look back on things maybe, um, and we are like, I don't know what was going on there, but clearly I, you know, I like to think of myself as a reasonable person or rational person. I don't just do things totally willy-nilly. I usually have somewhat of a reason for it, and so I did there. I don't know what it was. I don't know why in the moment I thought that was okay, um, but it's clear that like my heart or my mind had, you know, was fixated on something there. I'm going to guess maybe you guys all have some humorous stories like that too. My guess is no one has a senior picture worse than that. I don't know, maybe you do. If you do, I'd love to see it, but I'm going to guess no one can top that. Um, But at the same time, right, like, you know, you might have humorous stories, but I'm going to guess we all have similar stories of stuff like that, but that were more serious. Whether they were decisions we made, they were paths we took, uh, that, and then there are things that we look back on now that maybe give us some shame or embarrassment that made total sense in the moment. They felt urgent or unnecessary even, or sorry, urgent and necessary in the moment maybe. We look back now and we think, I don't know how I got myself to think that, right? I know in the moment I felt sure of myself. I wasn't, you know, questioning my reasoning or my emotional clarity there. And maybe I had some good desire mixed in, but I can look back now and see that there was actually maybe some selfishness mixed in, some ulterior motive. And now I wonder, as I look back at this thing, like, why would I have thought that that was okay? Why would I have taken that path that, like, I can see now, and I probably should have seen then, led to some ruin, led to some consequence, right? Why was I okay hurting this person, Maybe that's the way you frame the question. Why did I think I had the right to do this or that thing? Why did I fixate on this object above all else? Okay? And we can't figure it out yet. We all uh, have done that in the past, right? Now, I think this all gets us into the mind space to help us sort of enter into this passage well. And so what we're going to be talking about today is God's hope for the puzzle of our hearts and minds. Okay? There's an aphorism, I think Emily Dickinson wrote this in one of her books, uh, or in a letter or something like that, but she says, the heart wants what it wants, and it's kind of a way of saying, like, yeah, sometimes the heart just has its reasons, it just goes after something, and the only way you can explain it is because it's what the heart wants in that moment. There's no making sense of it, maybe, but it's clear the heart wants this thing. Okay? Our hearts are a puzzle, they are often dark and confusing puzzles. And we, I think we notice that, right? Like that, that, that quote or stories like the one I just shared, um, especially when we kind of veer into the more serious stories, um, we see that. But Jeremiah is actually talking about this even when he is talking and giving his message to Judah. And so there's a lot for us to learn and reflect on and learn about what God does or what his response is to all of this. So let's get into it today. We're going to be spending our time in Jeremiah 17. Let's start off with verses 1 to 2. The sin of Judah, this is God speaking here in Jeremiah, writing down this message to deliver to Judah. The sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. 
As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their asherim, which is just a pole or a tree that's associated with worship of some other god, by green trees on the high hills. So God is talking about uh, these, these patterns or habits that Israel has that are engraved, they're carved onto their heart. Like their heart is a stone tablet and something has been written on it that comes out of them now and it's written in there so deeply, it's like it's been written with, a, with an iron pen, with a, with a diamond point on the edge, right? A diamond is like the hardest thing that there is, right? Or at least it was at this time understood to be the hardest thing in the world. It would write into stone so well that it would be engraved in there forever. That's what he's saying. This is what is on Judah's heart. Now, the idea of something written in stone is not just something that Jeremiah or God is pulling out of thin air here. So earlier, Israel, which has now become the nation of Judah in this time, they'd receive stone tablets from God with the law on it, all right? And that was kind of understood to be written in stone. It was so important to be given to them by God that he said, write this down on stone so you can never lose it. You can never forget it. Not on a scroll, but on stone to show the value of this law. And God's commands, the things that are written on there that are supposed to be so important, were supposed to shape Israel's behavior. Not that they would just, and not just that they would memorize some list of do's and don'ts, right? It's not just like memorize this code and just make sure you, you never uh, accidentally, you know, break rule number five or something like that. It's supposed to be something that would become a part of them. That would guide their hearts, their will, uh, their desires, and their actions. And when the world around Israel looked at them, they were supposed to see hearts that were resonating uh, an understanding of this law that had been given to them on stone tablets. They're supposed to see God's wisdom, His glory, coming out of Israel as they followed after this law that had been given to them. But there's a problem with this. They still have the law. It's been written on stone for them, right? Everyone knew the law. That was not the problem. The problem was this, that their hearts have a commitment to wrongdoing that is etched into them. And it is overriding their ability to follow this law that has been written on stone. So I think there's a truth here that for us to understand. What's written on our hearts is going to override anything that is written anywhere else for us. Okay, if something's written on our hearts like this, it's going to override any other command or wisdom or guidance or advice that is given to us. We are going to uh, follow after the thing that is written on our hearts. And so they keep taking these wrong paths over and over again. So for example, the, the real beef that God has here, we find in verses 5 to 6, is this. This is what the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and he will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt that is not inhabited. So what is etched onto their hearts and can't be removed is this trust in human strength. And specifically for Judah, as we, you know, we kind of we really study what's going on here, it's a trust in sort of political alliances with the nations around them. Okay? They, they live in a, a turbulent time. It's kind of a crazy time. And Israel is fixated, Judah is fixated on finding their security or their way out of this turbulence through forming political alliances with the nations around them. Okay? Um, they, you know, instead of being set apart and unique, 
right, this law was supposed to help them do, they wanted to look just like the other nations around them, kind of playing politics, like, you know, uh, relying on the strength of armies and, like, counting up the number of horses or soldiers that they would be now having on their side in case uh, it came to it. And, and they're listening to the wise men of these other courts very happily, coming into their court or their king, kind of telling them that they should throw their lot in. Join this alliance with us. Here, we have this plan to overthrow Babylon. Why don't you help us out? Commit your men to us. We'll make it work. This is going to work. This, this plan is perfect. And Israel is very happily going along with all this stuff because of what is etched onto their heart. It is a trust in this thing rather than relying on God and hearing what his word is for them. And so just, you know, we've talked about this. Jeremiah has spent, he, he spends 40 years talking to Judah. We don't know where in his ministry this specific message comes, but he, he just keeps banging his head against the wall over and over and over again. And the reason is, is because he's contending with these hearts that have something else etched into them, kind of hard and unable to uh, be moved to listen to God's message through Jeremiah. And it leads Jeremiah to uh, pontificate here, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, heart here, I think it's important for us to know, it's not just like emotions. I think when we think of what our heart is today, we think of like our emotions, right? Our feelings are into something, and we separate it out from maybe our mind or something like that. That's not really how uh, I think an ancient Israelite would have thought about it. They would have said, the heart is the thing that's inside of you, the kind of, you know, the, what bubbles up out of you, right? It's your will, it's your desire, what you're fixated or focused on with your whole being. That's what they mean when they talk about heart. Now, because their hearts are deceitful and desperately sick and unable to be understood, God says Judah can't be trusted. They say one thing to God. We talked about this last, or a couple weeks ago. They say one thing to God, but they do the total opposite of it. Uh, they don't even know what they want a lot of times, God is saying. And so they just go from thing to thing, kind of wandering, wandering aimlessly, kind of like they're sick, and they change over and over and over again, Okay? In their minds, in all the times that they do these things, they are totally justified, right? They don't seem to have any remorse or any sort of uh, hesitation about doing this stuff. And that just proves God's point because it continues to lead them over and over again to disaster, okay? Including the ultimate disaster that hangs over the book that even though, you know, we read it and we, we hope Israel's going to change, we know they don't, okay? We kind of keep reading and we think, ah, oh, please, Judah, do not go down this path any longer, but we know that's what's going to happen. And we see them do it a couple of times, even on the way to this ultimate disaster. Okay? Judah keeps trying to pick the winning horse despite listening to God. They form alliances mostly with Egypt, and they keep choosing wrong. And so they have kind of multiple stages before they finally get to the place that the book ends where Jerusalem is burned to the ground, essentially. The temple is destroyed. Many of the people are carted off to Babylon where they're going to live as slaves in a nation that is not their own. And it's all because they continue to go down these paths over and over again. And they have no one to blame but themselves. Um, Steve Treichler, a friend of mine, pastor at, at Hope, where I know a, a lot of you are very familiar with, he, he often points this line, um, in an, it's an Alcoholics Anonymous line. Apparently, they, it's repeated a lot of times to talk to people when they try to, you know, maybe get out of going down the best uh, course to deal with their addiction. And they say, your best thinking got you here. 
I know you've thought a lot about this. I know you think that this is the right thing for you to do. But don't forget, the whole reason you're here is because you kept having the same, you know, your best thinking was the thing that made you end up here in the first place. So maybe don't trust it so strongly. Maybe accept someone else's wisdom and what they have to say to you. This is what God is saying to Judah. Judah's best reasoning keeps getting them into more and more trouble, but they keep doing it. And maybe they understand it, maybe they don't. Okay? But God does understand it. And that's what he says here in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, to give to each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. See, God does understand our inner self. He can sift through our contradictions and our desires uh, to make sense of it and to know what is truly deep and down there. And this is one of the main reasons that Judah should be relying on him. Now, like we've said, okay, as we kind of, I'm going to wrap up this section where we're kind of digging into uh, the, the text itself, and I really want to talk about what does this mean for us as we sort of try to learn from this. Because like we've been saying, uh, Judah doesn't listen to this message. That's kind of one of the hard parts of reading the book. It's kind of depressing to read, but there's a reason that this survived. There's a reason that people preserved Jeremiah's message, and it's for people who come after so that they can read through it and they can learn themselves about uh, what it looks like for us to follow God and hopefully avoid Judah's mistakes, okay? And so the main thing, obviously, that we're going to talk about, I'm sure you can guess this, is this. We, too, have hearts that are deceitful that even we cannot understand. See, I don't think uh, Jeremiah is, when he says in verse 9 what he does, I don't think he necessarily means it to be just you, Judah, are sick. He says, the heart is deceitful. He doesn't say your hearts are deceitful, He says, like, this is kind of true of all humans, and it's kind of a systemic issue, right? When we survey humanity outside of Judah, we often find the same kinds of hearts. We can find, we can look in a mirror a lot of times when we read Judah, read about Judah, and we can kind of see, yeah, this looks like me sometimes. This looks like people I know. This makes sense. It seems to describe humanity. It is carved with lines of patterns, often sinful ones, desires which lead us away from God, just like it was doing to Judah. Carved deep into our hearts with a diamond pen, right? Allowing the kinds of things that we might despise, that we might say, this is not okay, to run really easily through. Okay, they're paths that are well-worn, so easy to be taken over and over again, and they're carved deep within us. Like, you can't just fill in stone. You don't, there's no eraser to, mar, you know, to erase these lines when they're etched into our hearts. That's, that's part of the point here, that it's been etched in stone into our hearts. And our deceit, what kind of comes out of us, takes root in our institutions, in our routines, in our economic practices, in the decisions we make, especially ones we make over and over and over again, Right? And, and this is how things keep bubbling up out of us. The kinds of things that we might think, oh, we're a really smart society. Like, we've gotten past all the crazy things we read about in history. And then we're shocked when the kinds of things we thought we were over that we don't deal with anymore because we live in some totally enlightened society. They keep coming back and smacking us in the face. We just have to be shocked into remembering you know, that, that what is true of other people is also true of us. There's a reason that no society doesn't have laws. There's a reason no society doesn't have uh, courts or people to kind of make sense of and, and, 
execute judgment. There's a reason that no society doesn't have police, right? We, we understand intuitively that this is true of us. And so we set up uh, uh, guide rails and, and, and buffers to try to keep the deceit of our hearts from causing total ruin to happen, right? Intuitively, we all understand this. We, you know, we acknowledge that it's true even without acknowledging it sometimes. Now, this recognition of our deceitful, puzzlesome hearts has been a Christian and and oftentimes uh, Jewish conviction uh, from the very start. It's something that's been recognized for a long time, though at times maybe needing to be reaffirmed. One of the earliest Christian thinkers, um, the Apostle Paul, says in a letter to the church to Rome that none, he's talking about both Jew and Gentile here, are right before God. None understand, none seek God. He's saying what Jeremiah is saying about Judah, but he's expanding it to include all of us. He's saying this is, this is a common human problem. This is not something that just is, you know, uh, going to show up in a couple people or in a couple times and places. And this is a recognition of what the Bible calls sin, that it's common to all of us, that we're all equals in committing it, we're all equal sufferers of it, and we're all equals in requiring God's grace to set us free from it. Now, we could deal with this in a lot of different ways, right? Um, we could, you know, respond on a corporate level, right? And, and I think it's good for us to do that. Um, we don't always agree on what that might look like. Some people would say, we need more legislation, we need bigger governments. And then there's another group of people who say, no, the, the problem is we need way less of all of that stuff, right? Okay, these are all kind of responses to the, this, this problem, Okay. Now, trying to change things on a corporate matter or on a corporate level does matter, and I think it matters that we kind of think of wise ways uh, to do that. But I think we have to always understand that the place for us to ultimately start is with us individually and going to other people and trying to see, like, how can we change our hearts and our minds? Now, we could try self-mastery. We could try to master our hearts, right? We could try education. We could try to apply reason, to try to become the most reasonable people that are, are around. But think about this, okay? Think about the problem with thinking that that could be the solution to this. It assumes that we can make a distinction between our minds and hearts and our wills to want to get better, okay? That they're two different things. But that's not really how it works, right? We're going to be pretty bad, oftentimes, at mastering our deceitful or puzzled hearts and, and, and minds when what we're using to master them are our deceitful and puzzled hearts and minds. Why would we trust those things to be the thing that would uh, fix the problem? Your blind spots, your dark sides, your... Uh, your, your personality, the, the dark sides of your personality, your duplicity, uh, you know, are, are, are seeking out our own self-interest. All that stuff is going to remain even as you try to bring in the parts of yourself that you think need to be fixed. And, and, and that, that asks the question, like, could we even trust ourselves to figure out what the problem is, to diagnose the problems in ourselves, let alone figure out a plan to corral it? Again, like we said, your best thinking is what got you here. If you had a manager, let's say you worked somewhere, you had a manager at your place of work who was corrupt or they were, you know, super racist or sexist or something like that. Everyone agreed that this person, like, is a major problem. You wouldn't go to this manager and say, hey, we need you to come up with a plan to get rid of corruption or racism or sexism here in the company. Can you put together a policy for all of us to follow? I think we'd, you would find somebody else who wasn't the problem, right? Um, just because that manager might think they can fix the problem, doesn't mean that they can. 
The fix has to come from outside of us, from somewhere outside of our hearts. Now, as we jump ahead in the book of Jeremiah to chapter 31, we find that God does provide an outside fix. So Jeremiah 31, this is one of the few hopeful parts of the book. Um, uh, God says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. So what's God going to do here? Well, he won't tear down and destroy but he will what? He will build and plant. Notice that imagery here is in this passage. It shows up throughout the book, God talking about his purposes. He wants to build and plant. Now, how is he going to do that? How is he going to accomplish this purpose of building and planting? Let's move ahead a couple verses to verse 33. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, notice how this language echoes what we talked about in Jeremiah 17. He's going to put his law in their inner part, in their hearts. He will put their will and their desire, uh, or he will put that into their will and their desire and their pattern of thinking. God says in this new state of affairs, he will do something about that problem. Remember we said God had already given them this law, this guidance, this desire for them uh, to kind of conform their patterns and hearts to so that they would walk in a way that glorified God, that worshipped him and resonated that out to the world around them. But the problem was that that couldn't happen because something else was etched into stone on their hearts. That was sort of blocking it. Remember what we said, what is written in our hearts overrides what is written anywhere else. So God says, okay, then I'm going to write that law on your hearts. I'm going to make that flow out of you. I'm going to carve that into stone on your hearts. And by law, remember, he doesn't mean a law code. He doesn't, memorize, he doesn't mean that we would memorize a list of do's and don'ts, but that he would wire his will and wisdom into us so that we do it without thinking, like a signature put onto us that all can see around us, a signature carved into our hearts, God's signature himself of who he is, so that that is what bubbles up out of us naturally. Now, when, whether Jeremiah intended this in, in this promise, um, or it's just a pattern that God acts in over and over again, we today, looking back on what he says to Judah, we understand this to, to be what is what Jesus does for us, giving us his spirit, pouring it out on us uh, to people who weren't even originally uh, part of the hearers of this, renewing our hearts, giving us that signature on our hearts as well. This is the hope that is offered to us in Jesus. But I want to talk a little bit about, like, what does that look like? You know, it's, it's one thing for us to say that. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, at least some of you have heard that before. We, under, we understand, we believe God's Spirit comes into our hearts, and it changes us. It makes us new. That's actually a part of our, um, our, uh, our vision here at Res City, right? We want to see uh, people in our city and the world made new. This is how God makes those things new, is by pouring His Spirit out onto us. But I want to talk a little bit about, what does that actually look like in practice, and if we go to verse 34, I think we find out at least some of the answer to that question. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. 
So God says that they will know him. The people of Judah will know him. You will know, they will know his will and his wisdom. When you know somebody really well, when you know them intimately, you can anticipate how they would act in any situation because you've seen them do it. You know what they would prioritize. You know what paths they would take, what decisions that they would make, okay? You know that about them and so that you can live in that yourself if you want to. God is saying, this is going to happen to you. I will, you will know me. Well, how do you get to know someone? This is simple but really profound. You do it by just being present with them. You do it by just being in their presence. Now, I think we struggle sometimes with presence in this sort of skimming life off the surface world that we live in, right? We kind of go from thing to thing, skimming things at the surface a lot of times. We're not always great at being present, but that is the key to being made new by God. And and throughout this whole chapter, if we read the whole thing, we don't have time today, but there's a lot of language that describes God being with Judah that kind of talks a little bit about like what we read in Psalm 23. We did a whole sermon series kind of unpacking Psalm 23 and asking what it looks like for us to walk with the shepherd, to be in his presence. Okay, so a lot of those things that we talked about in that series helps us to be made new, to carve uh, new things into our hearts so that we may uh, follow after Jesus. Okay, so how is God's signature written on our hearts? I think it starts with presence. The heart is not something that can be quickly chiseled into, right? It's hard, it's durable, it's set in its ways. And when something gets carved into that, it's not something you can just take in a magic eraser to, like I said, okay? It, it, is, it is oftentimes permanent. So what God chooses to do is become present with us. Think of it like this. It always blows my mind when I think about the fact that the Grand Canyon was formed by just the presence of this river, not even a huge river, I don't think, just kind of over time doing its thing, slowly carving this stone into a gigantic canyon. Okay? It took a long time, but what was carved into it, into that Grand Canyon, like, you cannot undo that. You cannot fill that in, right? You can't, you, you can't undo the work that that uh, river did. It was just by uh, the presence of this river carving into that stone that caused this great can- Grand Canyon to form. I think it's like that with our hearts and with God. When we spend time with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, that presence will slowly but uh, powerfully carve into our hearts God's signature, God's will, His desire for us to live out, to make it brand new through Jesus, through His grace. And so when God comes and lives with the lives in our presence with each and every one of us through his spirit, it can, I think it can have that same impact as a tiny river on the Grand Canyon, making our hearts new, coming to us in grace, despite the fact that our hearts have other things etched into them, smoothing over those paths and creating something new through his spirit. So I suggest to you, like, Spend time in God's presence. There's so much power in that for us. It's not just going to, uh, you know, help us in the moment. Maybe we go to God, we, we look to him, go to him uh, to spend time with him because we have some need. We want to pray, right? Maybe we are feeling anxiety. We go to God to meet us in that anxiety, right? We go to him for short-term things a lot of times. But consider that when we go to God consistently in a regular way, he's going to do far more than just meet our uh, specific needs. He's going to carve his signature into us. 
so that what comes out of us, what people know about us, what is resonated around us is a worship of God, a glory that is shown to Him and His will and desire when it comes out of us. I think that's what the world needs. And to see that and to be attracted to it and to want to spend time in His presence themselves, to seek Him out, to, to find uh, the grace of God which can make all of us new. Um, we're going to spend some time in prayer here um, as we head into a time of worship and reflection on this, um, like we normally do. Uh, I really quickly, though, I do want to talk about uh, communion. So uh, you might have seen this in the weekly email that got sent out, but we are, after a couple years, going back to our uh, normal um, type of communion, what we, which we had done before COVID kind of made us change our plans. So um, in, in 1 Corinthians ten seventeen, Paul says, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Now, communion is a chance for us to spend time in God's presence, to carve into our hearts who he is. And what's being carved into our hearts with communion, I think, is a reflection on the, uh, Jesus whose body was broken and his blood was shed for us so that we might know his grace and his love for us, to redeem us, to make us new, to know what he did in order to make that possible. Um, we, we remember that in, in, in communion, and we do it every single week. Okay? But like what Paul says here, we don't just do it individually. We don't just do it uh, by ourselves. We do it with each other. There is something that reminds us of our common uh, uh, seeking after God, our common uh, desire to be made new by him, to be re- redeemed. And we, we show that by communion uh, when we all take the same lo- from the same loaf of bread. Okay, so we actually are going to have a, a, a loaf of bread out for everybody uh, to pick off of. Now, if you feel uncomfortable with that right now, that's totally fine, and we still have the little cups available for you too. Okay, so uh, don't worry. If that's something you're not interested in doing at the moment, uh, we're very okay with that, and you can just grab a cup. But we're going to ask you to come up here uh, today and grab uh, from this loaf, and I think it'd be easiest if we all came through uh, this row right here and then came around back uh, to go sit in our chairs. So... Let me pray and we'll enter into uh, that time of worship and reflection. God, thank you that you don't just leave us with other things etched into our hearts, but in grace you come to us, you make us new, you carve your signature into us so that we become people who resonate your glory to those around us because it comes out of us naturally. Lord, we pray that you would do that to us today um, and that you would do it to us in an ongoing way, Lord, more and more. God, you, you, you carve into us slowly throughout our entire lives, making us more and more like you, more and more people uh, who have your signature resonating to the world around us. And we pray uh, that you would do that for us this morning and all the mornings and days that we have going out from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.